Would you pray with me? And Lord, as we turn to now have your word proclaimed, uh, Lord, I pray that you would use it for uh, us to properly behold you, to gaze upon your glory, the glory of the one who died and rose for us and who is our eternal king, who laid down his life for the sheep. Lord, I pray that we would respond as your sheep to the voice of our good shepherd. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You you may be seated. We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel. And I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. As we read from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16 and then on to verse, or chapter 17, we are, uh, we are about to read some of the most famous verses in Scripture. We're about to read one of the most famous stories, historical accounts of God's work that is recorded in history. We're going to be reading of the story of David and Goliath. It's a good one. For good reason, this is a good story. Because it does tell the account of God accomplishing a great victory for his people. Now there are two theories, two competing theories about the meaning of this event. What was God teaching his people, training them, shaping their faith and confidence What was he doing through this? Of course, he was actually working a victory. It actually happened. He did actually defeat Goliath that day, and he actually defeated the Philistines. So that actually happened. But what was he doing? What was he teaching them about his leadership and about their own trust in him? Option A, was he in fact treating them, uh, telling them that they can have confidence That no matter the challenge, no matter how strong the enemy is, that they, by God's strength, are strong enough to defeat that enemy. Or, was he teaching them that when they needed the most, that God will provide them a substitute who will defeat that enemy instead of them. So let's read and find out. Before we read, actually, I I want to bring our attention to what I would see that should come from this passage. What we see, a summary of these uh, next verses would be that we see the end of the temporary anointing and the dawn of the eternal anointing. The end of the temporary anointing and the dawn of the eternal one. We saw that Saul was anointed by God as king over Israel. He was given a throne, a kingdom. He was given a reign, but that it was conditional. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. It depended on his obedience to the word of God. His throne, we saw last week, would be torn from him and would be given to another because Saul had broken the terms so Israel was losing her redeemer. 
Israel was, was losing her royal kinsman redeemer. Saul and his throne would not be the one which would provide the redemption which God's people needed the most. So what would be different about the next king which God provides to his people? Now we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read the whole chapter. We'll see the end of the temporary anointing and the dawn of the eternal one. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before the Lord, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. 
And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now I wonder if you noticed the difference in the way the spirit of God is given to Saul as compared to David. So the Spirit of God is said to have rushed upon Saul a few times. We've already witnessed this a couple of times. Notably when Samuel anointed him. And then also right before he worked victory over Nahash, the king of Ammon. Remember that? Saul hears about this oppression that the king, uh, that Nahash is doing. He's, He's committed to cutting out the right eyes of all of these people. Remember that? And then Saul has the Spirit of God rush upon him, and then he works a great victory, a great redemption for the people of Jabesh. And here now we see the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. But if you look at verse 13, when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, it wasn't temporary, but what does it say? From that day forward. So this isn't the indwelling work of the Spirit to save someone. You know, everybody would hate God and no one would believe Him without the Spirit's indwelling work. It's not possible. We are born in sin with hearts that hate God. Do not trust Him. Love, do not trust Him. This is not that work. This is something else. David, it appears, had that work in him before the special anointing work of the Holy Spirit because the Lord looked at his heart in verse 8. And since all men are born in sin with wicked hearts, if David's heart had anything praiseworthy, it must have been the Spirit's work in him before he was anointed as the Messiah or the anointed king of Israel. And so there was no true saving work of the Spirit within Saul. Because as the special anointing of the Spirit to make him useful to lead God's people is removed, we see that there's no saving work left within him, and all that he's left is with a wicked heart. Even before his empowering work of the Spirit is removed from Saul, he demonstrates he's not a man with a heart who loves God's word. How can we tell this? When Samuel is told to go to Bethlehem, Remember, Samuel is terrified because he knows Saul will oppose the word of God. So Saul did not lose his salvation. What did he lose? He lost his role as the savior of God's people. He did receive the spirit of God to work redemption for God's people. And he lost that work. And we should also notice that Saul was never God's choice. We've seen this as the previous chapters have gone on. Saul was never God's choice. Yes, the Lord himself selected and gave Saul to Israel, but he gave them the choice of their own hearts. He could see into their hearts, as we've already read in this chapter. He could see in their hearts, and he gave them the desire of their hearts. He gave them Saul. So that when God regretted Saul, that we saw at the end of last week, it was not a change of mind, 
of God. Not a change of plans from God, but it was God acknowledging the grief that was caused by handing the people over to their own hearts, to a king after their own hearts, something which was never God's plan. But God did give them over the king of their own hearts, a king like the world's kings. But in establishing a permanent throne with David, God is himself providing a king, his king. We see this over and over again. It is his king. This is God's king, not king over God, but it is the king from God. It is God's choice of a king. Saul was Israel's plan for a king. And why did God give her that king? We've already looked at a few reasons as we've gone on. But one of the things is that God gave Israel to uh, Saul to be his people, to show that that seed of that desire of their heart was wicked. And how did he do that? He put that seed in the ground and he watered it and let it grow up so they could see how wicked that desire of their heart actually was, to show that it was rotten. We praise God that he didn't allow that to bear fruit eternally. He cut that tree down permanently when he ripped away the kingdom from Saul. But now in David, we're going to see God's plan for a king to accomplish God's plan for his people in a plan that will be permanent. There's going to be no end to the plan that he has with David and the redemption he's going to work through David and David's throne. I also want you to notice this, how God's plan to give his people permanently to a royal redeemer It's accomplished by the word of God, right? Samuel is told who to anoint. But it's also accomplished by the providence of God. So Samuel had already been established by God as a prophet who spoke the word of God. Everyone knew that Samuel spoke on behalf of God. He was an established prophet. And God tells Samuel who to anoint. Go to Jesse. And then I'll tell you which of his sons is the one that I pick. And not the one that a man would pick. In fact, not the one that Samuel would pick, right? He thought, Eliab, he's the one. God says, no, not him. The one that God's word picks. And so we know who the redeemer of God's people is because the word of God will tell us who the redeemer of God's people is. But also notice that the redeemer, the anointed king, even though is anointed and told to us who it is by the word of God, he's brought to God's people by God's invisible hand of providence. God working through history to work all things according to his will. He governs the affairs of men. He governs all things. How do we see this in the text? David is brought to the royal court by God's providence. David didn't choose to go there. It wasn't David's dad's idea. It was barely even Saul's idea because it was God that permitted Saul to be tormented. Now, it's not clear whether it's an evil spirit that God sends or if it is just the sinful disposition which would plague every human's mind if it weren't for the grace of God. It is the terror of being condemned and rejected by God. To know that it is true. And if God doesn't grant distraction 
and other joys, it would torment every human heart. It is only by God's grace that every human is not living in constant terror of their sin. But God provides this reprieve and respite for all humans. Tormented by sin and guilt. And so this is the fruit of choosing Satan as master instead of the Lord. God permits Saul to be terrorized. He removes that comforting work and he permits Saul to be terrorized. It is by God's choice. Notice that it's God sent this upon him. Whether that's by a demon or whether it is just this sinful disposition of terror that would come upon everyone were it not for the hand of God. But it is by God's hand. We can see that very, very clearly. And why was that? Well, we've seen already because it was to, bear, to, to have Israel's sinful choice bear fruit, bear wicked fruit, so they could see how terrible their choice would have been and was. The thing that came out of their hearts. But it is also for the purpose of bringing David into the royal court. Because God gave Saul one reprieve. If beautiful music is played, it would distract him enough and that would leave. The only thing that could work to calm, uh, to, uh, to calm Saul's, Saul's torment is worked by God's hand. It is music at David's hand, which of course was given by God's anointing. And David was selected by Saul to, become, to come to the king's court. The Lord is establishing the throne of David, which was his plan to redeem his people, and his plan will, re- will endure forever. God's word tells us who his Messiah is. And then God's hand of providence works to bring him to his people and his people to him. And now we get to watch as God's hand of providence, which brings the the anointed of the Lord face to face with the enemy of God's people. That brings us to our second point, which is this, a shepherd to fight on behalf of his sheep. A shepherd to fight on behalf of his sheep. So now we get to watch as God's hand of providence now brings David to a battle where Goliath stands shaming the people of God. I want you to notice that he takes this shame personally. He feels a responsibility to remove the shame of his people and to end blasphemy against the name of the Lord. And in caring about his people's shame and about God's shame, he is shamed with accusations. Accusations that he's going to enjoy the idea of people suffering and bloodshed. He's looking forward to this. But here he is there. By God's word and anointing, but also by God's providence, puts David, the anointed of the Lord, in front of the enemy of God's people. To stand in the people of God to remove their shame. This is the first battle which the Lord would win through a Messiah with a permanent anointing and an enduring throne. It would be a fight that would be won single-handedly. Let's read in chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. 
and they were gathered at Succa, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succa and Azekah in Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain of the other, on the other side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And a valley between them, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse who had followed Saul into the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn next to him, Abinadab, and third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David's son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring them some token from and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went and Jesse as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was crying out to the battle uh, going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. So he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came, in, came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and, in it and struck the Philistine in his, for, on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and, and took his sword 
and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back after chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as David, as soon as Saul saw, saw David, Saul saw David go out another, uh, go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking the, down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the, ben, the Bethlehemite. All right. So the point of anointing David, tearing away the throne from Saul's house, before it became a, de- a dynasty, the point was for God to demonstrate that he and he alone saves. Not that he gives you strength to save yourself. And that salvation from his people's fiercest enemies would not come because they love him enough or are brave enough or even because he gives them a great leader that inspires them. Not not even that he gives them enough strength to fight for themselves against their enemies. No. From the beginning... The Lord promised his people a son. Remember Genesis 3.15, the promise to Eve. From the beginning, the Lord promises his people a son who would stand in their place to fight instead of them. I will remind you that only one Israelite that day fought Goliath. One man to represent the entire nation. God's covenant with Israel meant that their shame was something that he counted as his own shame. He saw Israel as his own body, as his bride, as one flesh. That means his own name was at stake if her redemption would not happen. David's throne was permanent. It would be passed on to his son and his son's son after him until an heir was born, a son of David who was also the son of God. David's responsibility as the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah of God's people, was unfinished by the time that he died. But because God promised him a permanent throne, it would be passed on to his sons, and he looked to one of his sons to fulfill the mission given to the royal kinsman redeemer of God's people. And that son came hundreds of years after. Son after son after son after son after son failed in his responsibility in that role. But David's greater son, his name was Jesus, the son of David. So brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, the Lord was teaching his people through these events. 
He was teaching them that their hope was in a redeemer who he would send to redeem his people who had no hope of redeeming themselves. Indeed, their hope was not even that he would give them strength to redeem themselves. Now, we learned about redeemers in the book of Ruth, didn't we? We just finished the book of Ruth. And what did we learn about a redeemer? Well, Elimelech needed a little bit of help. He needed God's strength to redeem himself, didn't he? No, Elimelech was dead. Dead, dead, dead. Boaz redeemed Elimelech after Elimelech was dead, except by God's plan and design and the way he shaped his people. There could be a kinsman redeemer who could stand in Elimelech's place and do what Elimelech failed to do, and it count as if Elimelech himself did it. So Boaz stepped in and acted on Elimelech's behalf to redeem his family name and restore what Elimelech had lost. Boaz's great-grandson David was anointed as Israel's kinsman redeemer. Not just Elimelech's family, but the whole of God's people, his kinsman, their kinsman redeemer. So that means David was anointed to act on Israel's behalf. He didn't merely muster the troops to kill Goliath. He didn't tell the Israelites that each of them were strong enough to kill Goliath. He didn't tell them that God would give them strength to kill Goliath. He himself, as the anointed redeemer of Israel, chosen by God, killed Goliath. Now, before David killed Goliath, what confidence did he have that God would give the victory to him that day? What did he compare it to? Do you remember? What did he compare it to? He compared it to the battle that he had fought as the shepherd of his father's sheep. David had done this before. Now, don't, don't think that this is just about David fighting about bears, with bears and lions. This is not what it's about. David had done this before. He had been in this position before. He had been a shepherd and trusted with sheep, and then somebody attacks them, and he stands in between them and defeats them. So... David stood in front of his sheep before Goliath, real literal sheep. He stands in front of his sheep. A bear approaches. And then David turns to his sheep and he tells them what they could do with God's strength. He tells them that they have the power in God to defeat the bear. No, he didn't. That would be dumb. David is shepherding his sheep and a lion approaches. David tells his sheep that if they truly believed in God, they weren't sheep, but they were actually shepherds. And so David led them in a chant. I am a shepherd. I am a shepherd. All of them, all the sheep together are chanting, I am a shepherd. I am a shepherd. No. His father had entrusted these sheep to him, and he would not fail to keep the charge given to him by his father. He would not lose even one. He destroyed the lion and the bear instead of having the sheep do it for themselves. So what did Israel learn to expect from the king who would inherit and fulfill David's throne? 
after David's death, the people of Israel learned by God's to command and direction. They learned to long for the son of David. And what was it about him that they had learned that they would, would be accomplished by his ministry? Do you recall when Jesus was walking through the streets, hundreds of years after this, of course, he's walking through the streets. Remember, what did, what did they hear? David, or Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, they're calling out to him as the son of David. They aren't saying, we are all sons of David. We are all sons of David. No, 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 no. They see the son of David and they call out to him to rescue them, not for help and confidence that they can rescue themselves. So what was it that God was teaching his people to expect from a permanent messiahship, from the son of David? That they would be the sheep of the messiah and he their shepherd. That the Lord would provide him to stand in their place to win the victory while they stood and watched. In fact, even while they stood and accused him. Remember, David's brother is accusing him of sin when he is getting ready to fight against Goliath. Psalm 78, verse 71. Look, the, the Psalms are filled with these messianic Psalms where the people of Israel are taught to hope in the son of David. In this, the throne of David, Psalm 78, verse 1, God is teaching them these things. Here's what it says in Psalm 78, verse, verse uh, 70. Talking about God. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepholds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So whatever victory that David's greater son would accomplish, it would be one which would be a shepherding victory, a do-it-instead-of-the-sheep victory. So today it was Goliath. David would soon show that no matter how great a king he was, and he was, he would soon show that his sin would mean that a son of his would have to fulfill his mission as a redeemer. So do not read this story to give you confidence that you can do anything. Read it to give you confidence that the Lord's Messiah can do anything for you. So it was Goliath that day, but the greatest need that God's people have ever had and will always have is their own guilt before God. When choosing David from Jesse's sons, the Lord told Samuel that the Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. If that's true, and it surely is, that is not good news for us. That was an indication that Israel was in need of a redeemer, a substitute not to make up for her lack of strength, which Saul kind of could do, but to deal with sin in her heart. That was her greatest need, was what God saw in her heart. That was her greatest need. You could say that was her Goliath. So the Lord looks in her heart, in Israel's heart, and in your heart, and he sees sin. 
which is a worse enemy than Goliath. Here's why. Because sin makes you God's enemy. And it is worse to be God's enemy than Goliath's enemy. Because Goliath could take your body. But it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because there, God sees your heart and he, being just, will damn you and send you to hell. There to receive the punishment for your sin, he will treat you like an enemy. And that is a worse fate and a worse shame than anything that Goliath could do to you. The shame which comes from having a heart which delights in disobeying God. A heart which is inclined to evil. Which breaks God's commandments. And that is your greatest need because sin brings condemnation. It brings the wrath of God. So then what will you do with your sin? If your biggest problem is the sin in your heart and the results because of it how it makes you an enemy of God and that eternal destiny as God's enemy. If that is your biggest giant, if that is your biggest obstacle, the biggest thing you need redemption from, what will you do with it? Will you trust that God will not be just? How foolish. Will you trust that you have no sin? That is also a foolish faith. Will you trust that God's Messiah, Jesus, was sent to give you a good example for how to face your own punishment from God victoriously? That is blasphemous. And it misunderstands what Christ came to do. Will you trust that Jesus, God's Messiah, gives you strength to fight sin and death and prove that you are worthy of God with God's strength? Well, that is, also a foolish, that is also a foolish faith. Because Jesus, God's Messiah, is a shepherd. And the redemption he wins for you is not one where he gives you strength to do it yourself. He's a shepherd. He takes the sin of his people. As their kinsman redeemer, he's qualified to stand in our place to stand in our place to do all that we failed to do, to accomplish all of God's word that we failed to accomplish. And he's also qualified to stand in our place when judgment is being handed down, and that's what he did on the cross. Alone Jesus was on the cross. Jesus alone took your punishment in full. He died for the sins of his people. For all who repent of their sin and trust him as their shepherd, as their substitute, as their champion, as their Messiah. And like David faced and defeated Goliath, Jesus faced death on the cross and defeated it so that you wouldn't have to when he rose from the dead on the third day. It brings us to our third point. How should we respond to the permanent Messiah. King Saul, we've just heard, King Saul knows David very well. There's there's a line in here, there's a couple lines in here that are kind of jarring, that seem out of place. 
because Saul knows him well. He loved him dearly. David played music to distract him from the terror of his sin and guilt that God was bringing upon him. David became Saul's armor bearer. How in the world do we explain then how Saul keeps asking, who's the man who killed Goliath? Who, who is that? Who, who are you? Well, Saul, you know David. He, he's been in your palace many times. He's your armor bearer. Why do you keep asking who this guy is? Now, you may recall eyewitness testimony of Jesus, David's great-great-great-great-grandson, asleep on a boat while his disciples fought a deadly storm. You remember this? They're in a storm. It's about to kill them. Jesus is asleep. They're terrified. They wake him up. When he wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the waves as if he were the one who made them. And they obeyed as if Jesus was the one who made them. The disciples were terrified during the storm, but after the, wor- the storm stopped by Jesus' words, they were exceedingly terrified. And what did they say? To a man they knew very well. Who are you? Who then is this, they say, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him in Luke 8? So Saul could be forgiven for asking, who are you? Whose son are you? Who is this? And the answer was that although Saul represented the people's failed plan for a king, this young man in front of him represented God's plan to redeem his people, which will not fail and which will endure forever. And Jesus, his son, who is also the Son of God, was the fulfillment of that plan. And the answer to the question, who is he? He is the Lord's Messiah, the shepherd of the sheep. So then what does this mean for his sheep? What does this mean for the sheep of David's son? If you are his sheep, what does this mean for you? It means we respond with glory. Repeated in that story is the honor reserved for the man who will step in and single-handedly defeat this enemy on Israel's behalf. Remember, it said, Saul says it, the people are talking about it. David asks like three or four times. The glory reserved for the man who does this is repeated. And so if that is true of David, what honor is Jesus deserving of for his humility? For obeying the charge from God to fight instead of the sheep. To give his own record of obedience to his sheep, and then take the wrath of God for them? The answer is eternal honor and glory. His sheep will glorify him and delight in his great love, which propelled him to die for them. They will worship him and adore him and love him and pour glorious words upon him because he deserves no less than that. They will never get to the end of what he deserves. They will never glorify him too much. They will worship him and adore him and love him, not in order for him to save them, but because he already did. And they will say, astonishingly, who is this man? And awe and worship is due him, and his sheep gladly give it to him. The other thing this does for the shepherd's sheep is that it gives us confidence 
And I want you to remember this because it is against a lot of what the world and worldly Christianity wants you to read in here. Your confidence is is not in what God does in you or through you. Your confidence is in what Jesus did for you instead of you. Now, it is lovely that the Lord works obedience in you. We'll get to that. That he gives you the desire and the ability to obey his commands. He works love in you for him and for family and neighbors and even enemies. But that cannot be your confidence. Your confidence must be in what the Messiah did for you when he was working on your behalf. When you were sitting down, not even alive yet. He finished his work in your place. His life and obedience counts for you as if you did it. His death and punishment from God on the cross counts as if you suffered it. Your confidence can't be that he has helped you obey because it is a different kind of confidence that the Lord gives you here. It is in what he did instead of you. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. He died for the sin, death defeated instead of them. It also means obedience for us. David could now be followed, couldn't he? How did the people of Israel respond? (laughs) We'll see eventually that they follow him as their king. But he proved he was a king worth following. And so too is it with us. Our king, Jesus, gives us commands. And whenever you hear a command in God's word that seems from your mind unreasonable or you can't imagine how it would be for your benefit or it would be for your eternal good, how this is a good command and not a wicked one, whenever you see this, you remember whose mouth it comes from. It comes from the mouth of the one who has already died for your sins. So you can and ought to obey his word, to follow the one who has already died for you. It also means that you belong to him. We've already seen that Israel was shaped and turned into a kingdom, which means she was the kind of people who could be given to a king, to belong to him. And so our confidence is that we belong to him permanently. You could have been someone who belonged to Saul and then not belonged to Saul. That is not true of the son of David. Because whoever belongs to him belongs to him permanently. His messiahship was permanent. It also means for the sheep of the shepherd, the son of David, we have a different view of providence. We have a different view of the things that happen in our lives, the evil things that happen to our lives, the difficult things, the good things. We know that it is God's word which identifies God's Messiah. He tells us who our Messiah is and what we can trust him for. But we also know that God uses providence, his invisible hand governing history and the affairs of men to bring about, to bring his people to him and to him, him to the sheep, which means cancer, good friends, bad friends, bankruptcy, infertility, all kinds of things. 
if God used and intentionally used the sin that Saul even was terrorized by to bring about his Messiah in front of his people, he will do those things. This is no accident. This is God bringing the sheep to the shepherd. In case we haven't been clear, this is a story, a historical account of how the shepherd is strong instead of the sheep. So you will face challenges in your life, and you already have. But your confidence cannot be that you are strong enough to defeat cancer, because you might not be. Cancer might take your life. Your confidence is not that you can keep that job. You might not be able to. Where then is your confidence? Your confidence is that Christ has already made you God's child. And those things will not be able to stop that. They will not be able to prevent you from being God's child. Therefore, they will not be able to stop you from acting like God's child. And that is the victory assured for you. That none of these things will be able to prevent you from being God's child and walking like his child. No promise is made that you will win the Super Bowl or defeat cancer or make a million dollars. But that you will always be his child if you belong to him. And he will always give you the ability to walk as his child because of what he did on the cross. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about shame. We've already seen that God sees Israel as his bride. He makes a covenant with them, which means he sees her shame as his own. And then he sends David, who stands in the way, and he sees Israel as his own shame. I want to ask this question. If one of the sheep was destroyed by a bear under David's watch, whose shame would that be? Would it be the sheep's shame? No, it would be David's shame. And he wouldn't let that happen. Brothers and sisters, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given to him by his Father before the foundation of the world. He has received a charge from his Father to lay his life down for you and then to go get you and then to hold you. Otherwise, it will be to his shame. If any of Jesus' sheep fails to make it to the end, it will be a shame to Jesus. Him breaking the charge his father gave him. I want to read some words from John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, that is his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, but I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Skipping to verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No bear, no lion, no cancer, no Satan, no false teachers, 
My Father who has given to them, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So brothers and sisters, you do not stand in David's shoes as Messiah. Jesus does. Your battle has already been fought by someone else and won by someone else. Your shepherd. So now trust him, obey him, and glorify him, not to make him your shepherd, but because he already is and will forever be. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have given us a redeemer who would fight in our place and win the victory in our place, who stood in our place on the cross, who doesn't teach us how to bear our own punishment from you, but who bears it instead of us, who doesn't teach us how to make it through hell, but who endured hell, the wrath of God, on the cross instead of us. And Lord, we are grateful that you have given us to Jesus to save and to keep. And there could be nothing better than to be his sheep. It is a humbling thing. There's no room for pride, Lord. But it is the most sweet and beautiful comfort to belong to him. And Lord, I pray that you would work this repentance and faith in all who are here. And I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.